Welcome to Westside Unscripted. This is the podcast where the pastors loosen their ties, throw away their notes, and talk about all things theology and culture. I am Josh Bartels, the assistant to the pastors here at Westside, and I am joined, as always, by Pastor Peter Montoro, our preaching pastor. And uh, Peter, you've done a lot of preaching this last week <laughs> coming up on men's retreat. So he's, Many much preaching this. <laughs> he's, living up, he's living up to his title this week for sure. And so having uh, done a lot of reading in preparation for uh, the men's retreat, you have uh, a quote to share from one of your readings. So uh, what do you got for I us do. today? Yeah. So this is from The Benedict Option, A Strategy for Christians in a Post-Christian Nation uh, by Rod Dreher, who later went on to write Live Not By Lies, which he did as a book of the month. And I definitely don't agree with everything that he says uh, in, in the book, but it is a very helpful book. And there's one quote that I uh, had on my outtakes for men's retreat. So I did not actually use this at men's retreat. Uh, and so I'm going to share it with you here. If a defining characteristic of the modern world is disorder, then the most fundamental act of resistance is to establish order. If we don't have internal order, we'll be controlled by our human passions and by the powerful outside forces who are in greater control of directing liquid modernity's deep currents. And one of the, yeah, I'd say, primary characteristics of our culture is to give people the illusion of spontaneity and agency um, it, when they are in reality being controlled um, by uh, outside forces. Um, and so, you know, social media is, of course, the prime example of this, that you think you are, you are picking what you want and you are controlling the experience uh, but there are very uh, brilliant uh, psychologists, armies of psychologists and data scientists that are nudging you if you go without a clear intent and you just sort of, oh, I'll just see what catches my eye. Um, that is not accidental. You are being led. Um, and so if we establish order, so with social media, you know, a way to establish that is curate, you know, you determine beforehand, before you get on the platform, determine I'm going to watch these videos on YouTube. If you just let on autoplay, you know, you, you may think you're being spontaneous, but you're actually being controlled. Um, and so thinking through in advance, hey, I'm going to do this. I'm going to establish order. I have, you know, 15 minutes to watch YouTube videos or I have an hour to watch, you know, how, however long is arbitrary, depending on your schedule. Um, but establishing order rather than allowing structures to be established for you, uh, because those who are establishing those structures, if you just sort of let it happen, um, they're their aims are not the aims that you should have at least. Yeah. And that's a, that's a pretty encouraging thought that order is the antidote to the disorder because that's a pretty relatively low bar to set for us to start doing something that's going to fight the uh, disorder in the world. Is that just order a little thing in your life? It, it's not, it's difficult. It's hard work, but it's not complex. It's not complicated. It's, yeah, and that's yeah. That yeah. was another quote from. I don't have the book in front of me that I I thought about before I picked this book up. That I also you know read from Andrew Street and didn't pick up, uh, but uh, didn't pick up this quote. Uh, but you know the most fundamental political act that we can do is engage in ordinary Christian piety, live lives that are not shaped like we have in our own lives. We not may not be able to control the world, but we have a, a remarkable amount of agency in our own lives. So if we want to push back against Leviathan you know, start by breaking the stranglehold of Leviathan on your morning routine, mm. <laughs> you know, on your, your, uh, your weekend routine and, and start living a life that exposes the lie that this is just normal. The, the way that, the way that, 
the uh, technological society is is telling people to live. Yeah. And so that's, you know, where we start. And then, you know, you'll find if you do that, if you try to break that stranglehold, you'll probably rustle up enough opposition to keep you busy for a while, um, not only within your own heart, but within your family, within other places. Um, and so, you know, if you raise the flag, the battle's going to come to you. Uh, not that we should never be strategic. I'm, I'm all for that as well. But, you know, it starts with fighting the disorder um, yeah. and the distortion of order and the illusions of order in our own lives. So absolutely. So our question today comes from one of the church members who in uh, listening to various podcasts and reading different books, uh, people have referenced the Apocrypha and have referenced Jewish myths and other extracurricular (laughs) outside of the Bible books and texts. And his question is just, what should we do with those kinds of things like the Apocrypha? Should we, is it something that valuable to Christians? Does it have value to us? Uh, How should we engage with those kinds of texts? Yeah, so we've got, you know, you've got a pretty broad range. So you have uh, the Apocrypha, and basically the Apocrypha are those um, non-canonical Jewish books that used to be printed in English Bibles um, or were included in the Latin Vulgate. Um, But actually, it's really sort of this elastic category. Um, And so, you know, books that we would include in the Pseudepigrapha get included in the canon in the Ethiopian church, which has like the biggest collection of books ever. It's significantly higher than anywhere else, I think. Uh, but there's some, some, so some of these Eastern churches will have a lot of books that we would, you know, even, so even much more Apocrypha. So what we call the Apocrypha is basically, you know, the books that we wouldn't consider canonical that the Catholic Church, you know, adopted. Um, and the reason they weren't considered canonical is because they're, they weren't written in Hebrew. They weren't part of the Hebrew canon. Jews don't, so primarily for the Old Testament. So for the New Testament, um, uh, you know, Catholics, Orthodox, Protestants of all types would share the same canon. So there's widespread agreement on the New Testament. On the Old Testament, the Catholics would have this, and they would, I forget the term, it's not coming to mind right now, but I forget the term that they call it, um, deuterocanonical, that's what it is. So they would recognize them as having some sort of lower status, but a higher status um, than uh, Protestants would give to them. So Protestants would say they're just, you know, they're not scripture. Whatever use they have, they're not scripture. Um, And really that isn't decided until, you know, that isn't officially decided until the Council of Trent. Um, Which and is what? 1560s. Okay. So in response to the Reformation, this is one of the things that people often don't realize, is that Roman Catholicism as we know it today is a response to the Reformation. So you wonder, you know, where was the church in the Middle Ages? Well, you know, the idea that everybody was all unified under the Pope was maybe what the Pope wanted, but it wasn't necessarily reality. And so a lot of things, so there was no, you know, Roman Catholic doctrine on justification until Luther, you know, gave his doctor on justification. And then, you know, the Catholic response was, well, not what he said. Um, it's more complicated than that. But you get the sure, idea, yeah. you know, that, so there's a lot of these things that get defined in response. And so, the, you know, the reformers had said, well, they're not in the, you know, so this had been something that had been debated. So it really is, it goes back to the use of the Greek Old Testament and the Hebrew Old Testament. Um, and so, you know, when Jerome translates the Vulgate, he doesn't want to translate the Apocrypha because there's no Hebrew original. Um, and they're not part of the Jewish canon, and he thinks that should matter to us. And others are saying, well, they've been part of the books that have been read in Greek, so we should accept them as part of the scriptures. So there's sort of this long, ongoing debate that then comes to a head at the Reformation, um, and it really, you know, centers around these Old Testament books. And so how should we, so, you know, I think that Jerome, on that point, he's not my favorite person in church history, but on that point, he's right, um, that God gave the Old Testament uh, to the Jews, and so... um, just for real practical reasons, the books that were part of their canon should be our canon. 
Um, and there's, you know, those are the books that would have been accepted uh, in Jesus's day. So there's a lot of good reasons to, you know, affirm that Old Testament canon. Um, and in terms, so I don't think, you know, the apocryphal books are mostly written, um, you know, they're later books. They're written in Greek. They're, they were never accepted as canonical by uh, by the Jewish you know, by the Jewish church. So were they added into the Septuagint then? Yes. So they get, yeah, that's the thing. The Septuagint, the Greeks, that's why I'll often use something like the old Greek translation of, because there really isn't any such thing as the Septuagint. Because there's like the Pentateuch gets translated at one point and then other books get translated at other points. And of course, you know, there's very few what's called a pandect that has everything all together. Um, and so what gets in different, you know, there's, you know, so most of the time they're being used and, you know, so we don't know exactly, you know, who grouped what with what, but, you know, so the, so that's, um, <laughs> I'm, it's, it's a really sort of, it's a fiendishly comp trying to sort all of these threads out is incredibly complicated. And like people will do a doctoral dissertation on the revisions, you know, so I have a friend who did his doctoral dissertation on the revision of the book of judges and the relationship between two different Greek translations of Judges and how they were connected. And so it sort of gets to be like each book has its own story. And so broadly speaking, I'm- So there's not just with the Septuagint, we're not talking about one text that was translated all at one time. It's a bunch of different translations from different people that eventually is grouped or is it just referred to as a Septuagint? The, The grouping of it all being the Septuagint is really a modern phenomenon. So there are, you know, so if you look at some older writings, they'll talk about the translation according to the 70, according, so Septuagint means 70. Um, And so it used to refer to a particular translation in modern uses, the Septuagint just ends up sort of loosely all Greek translations. Well, it's not just the translation according to the 70, which originally is just the Pentateuch. Um, but then you have other books that are translated other time by other people that we may not know about that get grouped together. Then you have revisions of that. Um, so you have other Greek translations that are not yeah, right. the, the translation according to the 70. Um, and so then you've got the Apocrypha. So these books get written. And that's the thing that uh, books like Maccabees are written in Greek. They, they, they're they're Greek translated books. from Hebrew Right, exactly. Um, the one exception to that would be uh, Sirach, um, which is a book of wisdom that seems to have been written in Hebrew, but the Hebrew was not preserved as canonical. It's the Greek text that is known. There's just some some fragments that have been discovered very, very recently, but they weren't known you know, to the ancient church. Um, and there's no reason to think that they should be included in the canon. Um, and so how should we think of them? It really depends on the book. So you've got something like 1st Maccabees is a very important historical source. You know, whereas 4th uh, Maccabees is sort of like uh, mesh up of, of Hebrew thinking and Greek philosophy. So it's very philosophical. Um, and then you've got, you know, some books like Tobit or Susanna that are just kind of strange. Um, and then you have additions. So you have a wide range of different things, but then you've also got this huge range of other books like Enoch, for instance, or second Enoch or third Enoch, you know, so you've got, and you, and then you've got books that are preserved only in Ethiopic, uh, or only in your, you know, these really like obscure languages where they were kind of destroyed everywhere and then somebody found a copy of them and you don't always know like are they Jewish or are they Christians writing as Jews? Um, so you've got all this kind of stuff. So it gets, you know, kind of, um, you know, you've got to take each, I guess what, I guess what I'm getting at and uh, I'm, what I'm getting at is that you have to take each of them on their merits. 
So a book like First Maccabees, very useful historical source. It's not canonical um, for the time in between the Testaments. Um, then you've got a book like uh, Sirach uh, that is, you know, or uh, the Wisdom of Solomon, you know, that it has some really lovely, uh, not the way, Sirach is the one I was thinking of, sorry. Um, but you have a book like Sirach that has some wonderful, very reminiscent of Proverbs. So it might be beneficial reading. It's not part of the canon. It wasn't, you know, I don't think it's inspired, uh, but it certainly, you know, is inspiring reading. Um, that would be beneficial um, in that way. And so that's kind of like not thinking of them as scripture, but thinking of them as you think of this part of this. So sort of like as this broad spectrum of, you know, like if you had a dump of books from any time, some of them would be useful. Some of them would be worthless. Some of them you wouldn't quite know what to make of. Some of them are very strange. Um, and so, you know, broadly speaking for historical purposes, insofar as we can, you know, find a particular historical context for them, they can be useful in sort of opening uh, the the broad picture. So I've, you know, the Psalms of Solomon, for instance, is important for messianic expectations. Um, and that's in the pseudepigrapha, but the sort of sharp line between apocrypha and pseudepigrapha is really artificial. Um, and so the Psalms of Solomon were very popular um, document in the, you know, first century. So they're important for understanding what messianic expectations look like. And I quoted them in a sermon. So I used it in that way. Um, or the, when Jesus says, come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, um, the Sirach was another book that was, I, I, I'm doing this from memory, so I hope I'm getting it right. Uh, but uh, it, it strongly echoes uh, something in Sirach in which that is referring to the law. Um, you know, so the law is welcoming. And so it seems like, given that that's a very well-known book at the time, it seems like Jesus is probably intentionally echoing that and saying, you know, what Sirach pointed to the law, I'm standing in that place come to me. Um, and so, you know, that, that he seems like he's familiar with it and he's echoing it. He's not quoting it as authoritative scripture, but it's, it, you know, there are allusions to some of these things in, even in the New Testament. So there's benefit to reading these things just on their own merits for what they, for their own benefit for the individual. Like that has to be, that has to be, uh, judged on their own merits and what right. the individual is looking for when they go to them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, if you want to know more, you know, it's a historical source or whatever. The thing I would caution about is there's some fraudulent, you know, so there's like, uh, there's like uh, these, the trial uh, documents of Pilate or something like that, um, that was for some reason picked up when I was younger and it was being sold as like, you know, proof, historical proof for Jesus. Um like even in the Baptist churches I grew up in, um, that someone was like distributing these things. It was like these letters from Pilate or the trial records of Jesus or something like that. Um, but it was a, it's a forgery. It you know it was so. There's like the really like crazy. I can't believe no one's told me about this. Most of that stuff is because they're made up forgeries. Um, you know, so they're really if you're like jaw dropped by it, chances are someone made it up to drop your jaw. Um, that's very often the case where the really astonishing, you know, it would be, if it was really astonishing and it was true, it would probably be well known. So some of that stuff can be, and some things will like deliberately mix in, um, you know, forge documents with known documents to throw people off course. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's a, something to be concerned about, I guess. Excellent. Wonderful. Well, uh, we'll recommend that you go find a copy of the Apocrypha. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I, I, it's yeah, something I, mean, I want to, it's, it's, you yeah. know, something personally I would like to know, you know, spend, 
has it hasn't been something I've given a great deal of time time to, but mm-hmm. I would like to you know learn more about it. Do you have any places people could go to learn more about it or find or like verify the source to make sure that something was not a forgery or things like that? Um, a good Bible dictionary or Bible encyclopedia. So that's actually what I would recommend. Um, we have Bible encyclopedias at the you know church reference library. They're not lent out, um, but uh, International Standard Bible Encyclopedia is a good. Uh, that's more conservative uh, of the encyclopedias, and so that would be a source that would give info. Um, and we have some other, you know, other we have a, we have a collection of Bible encyclopedias, and so just looking up, you know, the title of something and getting a sense. Um, of course, if something is, you know, a total forgery, it might not make it into the encyclopedia, um, but more common ones would be, you know, and so that. And we'll just, you know, if you have a question about something, ask me and send me an email, and I'll look it up and yeah. you know get back to you when I get a chance. So wonderful. Well, thank you for answering this question today. And thank you to our listeners for sending in questions uh, each week for us to uh, toss up and uh, talk about a little bit. Uh, If you have a question that has come to your mind about the Bible or about culture, you can send that to me, josh at bibledirectionforlife.com, and we will get that added to the question queue here uh, at Westside Unscripted. Uh, We'll be back again uh, next week with another episode, and we'll probably be hitting actually a Christmas break here in a little while and uh, taking a break for a couple weeks. But uh, until then, uh, until that point, we'll keep on uh, doing episodes and we look forward to uh, being with you next time. Mm